Welcome to this episode of To Differ is Divine, a podcast about spiritual permeability from the Episcopal Diocese of North Carolina, with Bishop Sam Rodman, Bishop of the Diocese, and Rabbi Raquel Jurevics, the diocese rabbi-in-residence and former leader of Yavna, a Jewish renewal community located in Raleigh. I'm Summerlee Walter, the producer of this podcast, and I'll be introducing each episode. Today we begin our four-part Lenten series with an exploration of sacrifice, or as Rabbi Raquel teaches us, offerings, as the Hebrew of the Torah is more correctly translated. She and Bishop Sam dive deep into an exploration of sacrifice in the context of both Jewish rituals in the temple and Christians observing Lent. They discuss what it means to align our wills with God's as they wrestle with two of the most difficult stories of their respective faith traditions, Jesus' agony in the garden and ultimate crucifixion, and Abraham's near sacrifice of Isaac. Their conclusions may surprise you. Like all episodes of To Differ is Divine, this one includes detailed notes to provide additional context for the religious practices and concepts our hosts discuss. We hope you'll take the time to read them and learn a little bit more about an unfamiliar faith tradition or maybe even your own. With that, I invite you to enjoy Lent, Sacrifice or Offering, part one of four in the Lenten series of To Differ is Divine from the Episcopal Diocese of North Carolina. In the Christian tradition, we are now in the season of Lent, and this gives us an opportunity to again have a conversation about the way our traditions differ and the divine gift in the differences that we hear as we share our experience and our journey of faith. I'm Bishop Sam Rodman here in the Diocese of North Carolina, and I'm joined again by our rabbi-in-residence, Rabbi Raquel Jurovics, and we are excited to have this conversation today as we begin the Lenten season focusing on the biblical construct and concept of sacrifice. Sacrifice in the Christian tradition has many associations, and particularly in the season of Lent, this would include the idea, and most of these are based on part of the biblical narrative, the idea that part of what we do during the season of Lent is some act of self-denial or self-discipline or sacrifice as a way of mirroring what in the biblical record of the four Gospels includes, at least in three of them, Jesus's time in the wilderness after his baptism, where he fasted for 40 days and was tempted by Satan. And often in the Lenten season, the idea of this personal decision to either give something up or take something on, or some act of, again, self-discipline or sacrifice. The reason that we do that is to mirror the experience of Jesus during that formative time at the outset of his ministry. But of course, because Lent is also in our liturgical calendar, positioned as immediately prior to Holy Week and Easter, There's kind of a conflation of what happens in the biblical narrative in the three years of Jesus's public ministry. And we move from this season of Lent, where we observe this kind of self-denial, to Holy Week and Easter, 
And there are all kinds of associations with Holy Week, and in particular, with the events of Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday, Jesus's betrayal, and then his trial and his death on the cross, that also have associations with the idea of sacrifice. And in some contexts, the term is used self-offering. And I think that's where the connection between the two in the Lenten season in our own tradition is a little bit complicated and sometimes confusing. Then if we add to that the overlay of the deeper tradition of sacrifice in the biblical record, and that includes the Hebrew scriptures, we see that there's even more nuance and more layers that are brought to the way that we understand the meaning and intention and symbolism of sacrifice. One of the things that can be experienced as a minority within a majority culture is that some of the languaging used by the majority infiltrates your self-understanding as a minority. So since Judaism clearly is a minority religion relative to Christianity, certainly in Europe and North America, and we find even in translations of our own texts, some of them by Jewish translators, the use of the term sacrifice for what are called in Hebrew korbanot, can shift the way we understand our own history and can lead to a sense that our religion, the Judaism we practice now, needed to evolve away from something that was more primitive and transactional in some ways in dealing with the Holy One. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to take a few minutes to give some context to what you just alluded to, Bishop Sam, as the complexities around biblical texts that deal with what we tend to call sacrifices. There are so many familiar images of people bringing their sacrifices to the temple, the great pilgrimage holidays, that people are coming up to Jerusalem for the sake of bringing these sacrifices. The word korbanot, however, means offerings. And the term sacrifice which comes, I believe, from Latin, doesn't carry the same meaning, the same resonance that an offering does. In many ways, if you use offering in lieu of sacrifice, you're emphasizing the reciprocity involved. And there's certainly a great deal in Torah that leads us to understand that we and the divine are in a reciprocal relationship of receiving and giving, and that there are ways in which we can offer of ourselves in gratitude. There were certainly offerings that were brought for the sake of expressing gratitude to God. They were called peace offerings, relating to the word shalom being the root for shalem and shlemut, wholeness a sense of gratitude for the wholeness of reality and the wholeness of all that God has provided for us. There were opportunities to use an offering as a sign of drawing closer to the Holy One after recognizing that one might have transgressed in a way that missed the mark, that didn't meet the level of behavior that we aspire to, and also that could facilitate a sense of reconciliation. There were offerings that were called an olah, a burnt offering, 
And it represented in many ways a sense of being in submission to God's will. And my suspicion would be that it's that term that has the closest connection to the uh, narratives in Holy Week. And Olah is a completely consumed offering. The priests and the Levites and their families in no way participate in consuming this uh, offering. It could be any sort of an, an animal, cattle, sheep, goats, even birds, depending on the offerer's means. But it's not something that can then also be used to nourish people. It's something offered to God as a sign of coming up close. It comes from the same root as to ascend, of coming as close as one can get in this world to being interconnected and placing something before God that is given over only to God. Mm. So I think that there can be a tremendous shift in understanding when we move past the terminology of sacrifice, which many of us hear as requiring us to give up something as opposed to share something. If you bring an offering of the first fruits, you're saying, thank you for placing us on this planet that is capable of sustaining our lives and for having the agricultural skill to create produce that we can live by. So I think that the movement of approach and giving over out of love and appreciation and receiving from that act a sense of reconnection and reconciliation with the Holy One is closer to the sense of the term. And maybe later on, we'll talk about what I think is a startling exception to that, that is exceedingly important in terms of the offering of a person as something that God might indeed want. Hmm. This is so helpful in the way that you're framing it and the distinction you're making between the traditional understanding associations, perhaps, rather than actual accurate understanding of what constitutes a sacrifice, but inviting us to consider what it looks like to engage in the Christian tradition, the time and the season of Lent as an opportunity to, with intention, offer something of ourselves in a deeper way to reconnect with the Holy One, with the One who made us and loves us. And that the old model, at least in my generation, of giving something up is only one expression of a way to connect with both, you use the word submission, which I appreciate, because there is that sense that this is based in a relationship that matters. And yet, submission also has other connotations that indicate a power differential. In order to submit with integrity and with health and wholeness, we must be submitting to someone who we trust. And that, to me, seems extremely important in terms of what you described as an offering. We offer something of ourselves, something of the fruits of our labor, something of a learning or an intention to learn for a season that actually builds up a relationship with someone that we trust because we believe that that is for our well-being, which is quite a contrast to the idea of self-denial in the extreme sense or sacrifice or in its most severe forms in the Christian tradition, there were those who 
on the spectrum of this idea of discipline and self-denial would actually, I would use the term, abuse their own bodies. And whether that was the proverbial hair shirt or there were those that participated in a kind of ritual flagellation of whipping oneself, which is to me very distasteful and very inconsistent with my understanding of what a loving relationship would invite. And yet it's not so surprising that in the spectrum of the way we understand what sacrifice means, we might actually miss the mark, even with how sacrifice can be incorporated and expressed. And the idea of a self-offering or a way of going deeper in relationship as the invitation of the season of Lent, to me, is much more appealing. And the idea of submission or surrender calls to mind the conversation I had early on in my parish ministry with someone who was very sincere in their intention to really explore the depths of their relationship with the one who they felt was calling them, and that is God, to a deeper understanding of what was being asked of them in terms of their life and their vocation. What were they to do with the gift of life that they'd been given? And the word that kept coming back to this person in prayer was the word surrender which is related to submission, but also related to, I think, a strong theme in both of our traditions, which is the idea that God is God and we are not. And therefore, part of how we navigate the relationship is this recognition that in that difference, that divine difference between the Holy One and our humanity, there is a place where we can play together where we can learn from each other, where we can grow in relationship, where we are invited to be touched both by the holiness and by our own humanity as a way of understanding who we are called to be. But on a very sort of practical and even secular level in that conversation, as we were talking, I was reminded of a song, and here I'll be certainly, again, revealing my own identity as a baby boomer, who grew up with the rock and roll of the 70s and 80s, but there was a group in those years called Cheap Trick, which most people probably don't remember, but they had a song called Surrender. And the refrain in the song Surrender, which I maintain is deeply biblical, although possibly unintended by the writers of the song, the refrain was, surrender, surrender, but don't give yourself away. And I've always loved that because I think there is something true in that chorus, that refrain, about God's invitation to surrender. It does not mean the, and I can never say the word correctly, but the abnegation of self. It means that by surrendering, we discover ourselves. We discover the fullness of who God intended us to become. And that's a very different pathway than abject surrender that leads to self-mortification or self-denial in the extreme. And I think that has real promise for us in the Christian tradition as we contemplate the invitation of Lent and what it means to make an offering that draws us closer to God. Well, since I'm slightly too old to be a baby boomer, <laughs> I do appreciate your shout out to Cheap Trick. It reminded me of something that I heard my mentor, Reb Zalman Shakta Shalomi, mention from time to time. 
this question of divine will and individual will. Because when you start talking about submission, I think quite rightly, being aware of our own carrying of will, of our own having desires and intentions and preferences, the very idea that that those might need to be subsumed in some way into a larger will is one of the big questions that religious traditions have to address. In what form do we demonstrate our connectedness with the divine? And depending on the tradition and on the variant strand in each tradition, the precise meaning of a term like submission is going to vary dramatically. But in line with what you recall from Cheap Trick, Reb Zalman would talk about imagining the divine will as a very powerful stream that is moving through a terrain that varies. And so sometimes the stream can be quite placid, and at other times there are rapids and drops and narrowings and things speed up. And you are in a boat. And the boat is safe, and you have an oar, but that's the extent of your control over the stream. Mm. The stream is the divine will, and you in your boat are navigating your path, moving along with this greater will that has manifested our universe and all being. Rabbi Arthur Green had a lovely phrase, which I think only showed up in a, a footnote in one of his recent books that we are free-willed extensions. As human beings, we are free-willed extensions of the divine will. Mm. So that immediately gives you that sense of deep interconnectedness where you can imagine reaching towards some awareness of your capacity to plug into that ultimate will. And at the same time, recognizing that in your own sense of selfness, that your capacity to execute that will is limited in a way that the divine will is not. And from that perspective, and particularly because in in Jewish tradition, our relationship with God is always repairable. Mm. So when you talk about submission, I think that to a large extent, in my understanding, what we're feeling our way towards is a sense of realization that while we individually are not God in God's entirety, we are all of God. And that if you can attach yourself, as the Hasidic masters say, to any point of holiness, Mm. then it's as if you had the whole thing. Mm. So that we are simultaneously limited and infinite in our capacities. Mm. Something else that in reviewing my sometimes less than accessible memory banks about the word sacrifice is that while common usage, I'm told, for example, that there's something called a sacrifice play in football, perhaps? Baseball. Baseball. Oh, okay, fine. See, that that's proof positive. I'm not a sports fan. So there's such a thing. And I presume that means that something is given up to get something else. So that's as far in the sports analogies as I'm ever going to get. That tends to be the larger cultural understanding of what a sacrifice is. I certainly have heard in Christian context, some people talk about, well, God did this for me. God gave up something. God diminished God's own self in a way to become a human being. And this is something theologically for you to address with us, you know, with more wisdom than I have. 
But that because God was willing to do that, we have incurred a debt. And that part of what we do in responding to that is be obedient to the divine will. The roots of the word sacrifice that does come to us from Latin relates to things that are sacred, sacerdotal, and that are holy, which ties it in with the sense of kadosh, of holiness, and the whole system of offerings and their management in first the tabernacle and then the temple had to do with assigning roles according to the relative holy responsibilities of the different categories of people involved, from the priests and the Levites to the individuals who are bringing the offerings within the community and the import of their ritualized interactions around demonstrating their own holiness by doing something holy for the sake of the Holy One. That pervasive sense of of the sacerdotal, of of the holy, permeates that process, at least as as I understand it, for our ancestors. I really want to go back to the point you made about our will, the will of the Holy One, where they intersect. I love the image that, in some sense, we can connect to the wholeness of the will of the Holy One where those points of contact, where our will meets the will of God. But what it draws me to in our tradition, in terms of the biblical narrative, at the end of Lent, as we move into Holy Week, is that very dramatic scene on the night before Jesus is crucified, after the Last Supper, when he's in the garden, and he asks three of his closest followers, Peter and James and John, to pray with him, and they go apart, and it's often described as the agony in the garden. And Jesus is anticipating what will come next and is expecting, it appears from the narrative, to be arrested, to be put on trial, and to be put to death. And the prayer, as it's recorded in the Synoptic Gospel accounts, and I think in John's as well, is, may this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but thy will. And that is such a powerful image of what you're describing, and such a poignant moment in the life of Jesus, where we see revealed the power of his surrender and his willingness to take the directive or the invitation or the will of God and to follow that of his own volition. I do not pretend to fully understand the depth at which he experienced that in the description in one of the gospel accounts, it said he sweated drops of blood. What I can understand is that something happened where in that moment, Jesus's own understanding of God's will was so all-encompassing that he was able to trust his whole self to that will, literally his whole life to that will, and to let what follows unfold. That, to me, is very different than a denial of self, except in the sense that he often is quoted as saying, lose your life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel. It really does seem to embody the willingness to give up oneself to a larger purpose or a greater good and to trust that in and through that, somehow, your own integrity, identity, and the meaning afforded your life is preserved. Sounds very abstract in the way, as I listen to myself, but it had very real consequences for Jesus. 
we have a prayer in our tradition that is actually considered in our morning prayer liturgy, a prayer for mission. And it goes like this, Lord Jesus, you stretched out your arms of love on the hard wood of the cross that everyone might come within the reach of your saving embrace. And the power of that to me is the invitation that love would be seen in that act of self-offering that would be compelling to any of us as an expression of the depth of God's love for each of us. The journey in Lent inevitably invites us to focus on that moment as part of the journey and to wrestle with what it means for us. Is that a sacrifice? I don't fully understand the way that that particular action would be construed as a sacrifice, but for centuries, that's been at the heart of the Christian teaching. So I have to wrestle with it. Makes me think of that line from Song of Songs, love is stronger than death, which offers itself up for reflection and interpretation, certainly. I think that what you were describing in the last few minutes does touch on some of the most mysterious and difficult questions that arise within your own faith around the nature of Jesus's self-offering. After all, I know that there were many councils of churches to discuss whether or not Jesus was fully God or fully human or always fully God and fully human. And that is a complex history involving any number of rhetorical and literal conflicts to even begin to talk about. But one is forced in hearing the narrative of the Passion Week. And I would imagine trying to live during the Lenten period with a sense of anticipation for the salvational outcome of the resurrection on Easter. One has to struggle with the questions around penitential behaviors, around the nature of sin, about, well, how does that affect our interconnections with one another? How does that affect our interconnections with God? It raises questions of substitution. How comfortable can I be that the divine itself suffers and dies as a person would suffer and die? Even though we know how the story ends, we know that there is a resurrection. Is that enough? And if that's a substitution, what is it a substitution for? What else might we have been doing to reconcile with God if that self-offering hadn't been made? Hmm. So as is understandable, and I, I know you're quite aware of this, it can be very difficult for Jews to listen to Christian depictions of narratives from Hebrew scripture particularly the first five books of scripture, as being predictive of the narrative of Jesus's birth and ministry and crucifixion and resurrection. At the center of some of that discomfort is the narrative in Genesis of the binding of Isaac. Mm. That narrative, in my experience, is one of the most tautly written, beautifully plotted bits of scriptural text the depth of, of interpersonal and human and divine emotional and spiritual turmoil that are depicted in those very few verses strike me as remarkable. And it's a very difficult text. What in the world does it mean? And after these things happened, God decided to put Abraham to the test. First of all, it certainly does feel as though it's more Isaac who's being put to the test than Abraham in some ways. 
But as we've certainly discussed on other occasions in, in considerable depth, because of the deep theological questions that the narrative raises, there are, of course, hundreds of commentaries of midrashim, of interpretive responses to what comes up in the white spaces for us. And just to remind our listeners that when you look at the Torah text on the scroll, you see the words, but there are no vowels, there are no punctuation marks. So, for example, you don't know, where do you put the punctuation in the words where Abraham says, God will see to the lamb for the offering, my son. Hmm. That is ambiguous in the extreme. So, as part of my own learning over many years, I felt this kind of utziness abound. What didn't seem unreasonable to me, that Christians would see some analog in the binding of Isaac and in the crucifixion of Jesus, but Judaism is so much in opposition to literal human sacrifice that that seemed hard to process and understand. And as my learning progressed, there are a few things that come forward that I'd like to share. First of all, this text is considered one that requires continual focus and inquiry. There are texts from the Torah and from the prophets, from the writings and from the Mishnah and Talmud and some of the law codes that in traditional prayer books are collected towards the beginning of morning worship for the sake of people who might not have time to devote themselves to study during the day. They might not have formal opportunity to study, but they could look at one of these texts and study it. And the Torah text from the first five books is the Binding of Isaac. So potentially someone could look at that six times a week. Why? Because it makes us ask questions. Secondly, because the issue of setting Israelite and then later Jewish practice apart from pagan practices in the part of the world in which these traditions arose was so important to our ancestors, anything that smacks of approval of a human sacrifice it faces a great deal of resistance. Hmm. And then I trip over a book that I hope many folks have become acquainted with. It's called The Last Trial by an author uh, whose name is Shalom Spiegel. And the subtitle is On the Legends and Lore of the Command to Abraham to Offer Isaac as a Sacrifice. Hmm. And it's not a huge book, but it's deeply scholarly, very well researched. And it opened my eyes to the power of Midrash to use a puzzling narrative in which God appears to ask a human person whose whole life has been focused on creating enough of a family to assure the transmission of his religious insight to the next generation to apparently kill his favored son, the one he most loves, Isaac. It turns out that depending on where you are in Jewish history and the needs of the time, the commentators, the midrashists, would find in this narrative many ways to use the interactions between God and Abraham and Isaac to illustrate the suffering of people who were forced to make untenable choices. Hmm. So while there might be narratives, commentary narratives that offer a counter argument to the notion that Abraham was really blessed because he did what God wanted to something like, I was really blessed because God saw his intent and pitied him for not having the good sense to know better than to act as if he could kill his child. 
There are also times when the story is held up to say, if you're given a choice to abandon your faith or die, remember what Abraham was willing to do, slay your own children and then kill yourself. And that was a dominant teaching during the First Crusade, particularly in the Rhineland in Germany. Mm. Because the Crusaders were not very subtle in their conversionary efforts to Jewish communities en route to the Holy Land. And if the choice is convert or die, then the binding of Isaac becomes a model of that kind of ultimately self-offering, allowing oneself to die to uphold the holiness of God as you understand that holiness to be expressed, is called Kiddush Hashem, the sanctification of the divine name. So ultimately, the person who has to be the angel of death to his family then has to turn the knife on himself. Al-Kiddush Hashem. Mm. This is not a comfortable array of understandings by any means, but it does deprive me, I think, and my co-religionists of insistence that there aren't resonances between our scriptures. Resonances are perhaps not predictions, but they are striking sounds that form chords, or we can hear that there is a resonance that touches us. So after reading The Last Trial, I found in some other places some remarkable midrashim, two of which I'll share briefly. There are many that suggest that Abraham did, in fact, use that knife he was carrying and did kill his son on that altar, and that Isaac's soul ascended to heaven for, let us say, three days and returned. That's a midrash. Hmm. There's another midrash in which Isaac argues with God about human frailty and says, look, it's hard for people. They do their best, but we're not so good at this getting it right stuff. So let's spot them the eight hours they sleep. You use your compassion to forgive them for a second eight hours out of the 24. And then you take into account that I was willing to die on that altar, and you have the ashes in the imaginal temple on high. You have the ashes from that offering, and that's there to remind you that I did that so you could forgive people. So I know that Jews, generally speaking, we are not great fans of substitutionary atonement, <laughs> nor do we read the, uh, the Akedah, the Binding of Isaac, a narrative endorsing child sacrifice. We can't pretend that the resonances aren't there and that the questions aren't put before us as starkly as they are put before Christians. So my sense of how to read that, going back to one of the types of offerings that I mentioned towards the beginning, Abraham is told to take Isaac up on the mountain, to elevate him there as an olah, as what is translated as that completely burned offering. Ola and Ha'alehu are from the same root, which means to elevate. And I would like to think that God was saying to Abraham, could you take the boy out to the wilderness and teach him something that you have learned spiritually in all these years you and I have had together? Lift him up and make him enlightened. Mm. Uh, make him understand what you know. Because yet another Midrash says that while Isaac was lying on that altar, thinking it was his last moment, he saw the divine presence the Shekhinah smiling, and the light from that presence was so bright that that's why his eyes dimmed. Mm. Mm. That is a very powerful interpretation. 
especially I'm drawn to the last one. And the idea of lifting up being the invitation from the Holy One and inviting Abraham to give his son Isaac that experience of being figuratively and maybe literally brought closer to God, not through threat to his life, but through insight and sharing of wisdom and enlightenment and journey, which is not without sacrifice, but it's an altogether different kind of sacrifice. And I find that insight helpful in terms of my own way of struggling, wrestling with, and appropriating the meaning of Jesus's death on the cross. Like you, I am very cautious around theories of atonement substitution or ransom or even Christus Victor, which seems to me to be an appropriation of a moment in the life and self-offering of Jesus that is an overreach on the part of Christian scholars. Instead, the invitation to wrestle with what it means that human beings would do this to one another is kind of the theology from below, if you will, of examining the cross not as an expression of the will of God, but as an expression of the depravity of human power. And for me, that is a much more compelling frame of reference to understand at least a piece of what was happening in that moment on the cross. Perhaps that's a place that we can leave our conversation for today and pick up the thread of meaning and making meaning out of this season and the call to repentance and to confession and to forgiveness, which is where our conversations will take us. Join us on March 8th for part two of our Lenten series, as Rabbi Raquel and Bishop Sam discuss repentance and confession.